It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Sharon Stone is a world-renowned actress, sex symbol, mother of three, and a Nobel Peace Summit award-winning philanthropist. Growing up, Sharon, along with her parents and her three siblings, lived in a rural town in Pennsylvania. By 19, she moved to New York City to work as a model. In 1990, Sharon found her calling, landing a role in the sci-fi action hit Total Recall, opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was Sharon's magnetic performance and that infamous interrogation scene in the erotic thriller Basic Instinct that made her a superstar. Sharon went on to win a Golden Globe and an Oscar nomination for Martin Scorsese's Casino. She won an Emmy for her role on The Practice. At 63, Sharon has written an insightful new memoir, The Beauty of Living Twice, where she opens up about her public triumphs and private sorrows. Sharon Stone, I am so happy to welcome you to Super Soul. Oprah, I am so happy to be here with you. Great Nowhere to see Nowhere I'd rather be. Oh, thank you for that. You know, you're in a studio in Los Angeles, I just want to say this, and I am in my flower garden in Maui through the magic of tech we get to be together today. Uh, gotta love a green screen during these COVID times. That's why I want to start out by asking, first off, how are you and your family doing? I'm so sorry to hear about the, the loss of your godmother due to COVID. I understand you also lost a dear friend. My adopted grandma. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that Instagram. That was so powerful. And I want you to scream out against this thing for Eileen because I don't want her to die alone. I want her to hear you rage on against the dying of the light. It's devastating, I mean, at this point. And that was back in April. I thought what you said was so heartfelt and literally penetrating. I just felt like if we could just quickly respond and if we could all wear masks, we could stop this. It just is so disheartening to see us at 500 thousand deaths that 
so easily could have been prevented. How are you and your boys personally coping? Have you just been at home with the boys? Well, um, I have three boys in puberty and I'm in late stage menopause, so I can say <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of hormones in my house and, you know, it's a lot of energy to be inside all the time. Like a lot of parents, my hair is standing on end. <laughs> uh, well, you got through it, we're getting through it. And you know, I, it reminds me of the story you tell in uh, your beautiful memoir, The Beauty of Living Twice, where your father talks about Babe Ruth just yeah. going up to bat and you just have to keep getting up to bat. And yeah. that's what we've all had to do. Yeah, and I think for, some of us, we are a little bit luckier than others. I feel this situation with the increase in poverty and the decrease in empathy that we have so much to learn. And I feel that this is the benefit of COVID, that we have learned about each other because we've had to learn about ourselves. All of these different movements that have happened during this time have been extraordinarily educational. I think we've learned so much through Black Lives Matter. And I think just the very fact that we now know what redlining actually is, and we start to understand the way that our country has been divided, and we're forced to sit down, stay at home, and actually learn something has been so beneficial to us as a nation. What personally did Black Lives Matter, how did it enhance, enlighten, impress uh, you? I'd say in, in several different ways. Um, first of all, I was really delighted to get the education of exactly, I mentioned redlining because I thought it was really beautifully finally told in a very specific and educational way that no longer could be denied. By all sane people, can't be denied by all sane people, right. yes. Let's talk about this memoir. Uh, the Beauty of Living Twice. It is, may I say, it's a great read. And even Thank though you. you had to go through so many harrowing experiences in your life, I think that people will actually find it really comforting and, and, and healing for them to know you. that you've been through that and it means it's possible to get through it. And the title comes from when you suffered a massive brain aneurysm, which we've spoken of before, but I understood it in a way that I hadn't from all the conversations we've been having since we first started talking about it years right. ago. Right, So I had this feeling, I sat down on the sofa and it just, it hit me in the head so hard that I fell over on the sofa. Wow. Like, really like I felt like I must have been shot. And doctor said, I don't think I even recognize this, that you had a 1% chance of survival. So what were the chain of events that got you to that gurney? I love that moment. You're on the gurney and you stand up on the gurney and you say to the doctor, you're fired. You're bleeding in your brain, Sharon Stone. You are bleeding in your brain, but you find the strength to stand up to tell the doctor you're fired. So get us to that chain of events. First of all, I think my will to survive was strong because of many of the things I went through prior to this. So when they were shoving me through to exploratory brain surgery, and I didn't know it, and suddenly I came to being wheeled down the hallway to 
and I didn't know where I was going, and I asked the orderly, and he told me I was going to exploratory brain surgery that no one had explained to me. I was so shocked, and I just thought, oh, no, this can't be me. Oh, no. And I said, but why? But wait. And he said, we can't wait, or we'll lose the operating room. Lose, lose the room, yeah. And I said, but stop. Someone has to explain this to me. No, there's no time. No, there's no time. And he said, no, the doctor's already ordered it. And I said, stop, stop, stop. And he wouldn't stop the gurney. And so I realized the only way I could get him to stop was if I stood up on the gurney. And wow. at this point, I'd already been bleeding into my brain for probably, I think, at least four days. I just didn't know what else to do. And so I kind of pulled myself up on my knees. And of course, my gown is flapping open and my ass is hanging out. <laughs> and the doctor came running down the hallway and he had this fax and he kept, he's yelling at me and he's telling me to sit down and do what he's telling me to. And then he took the fax and he goes, I have a fax from People Magazine. And that's when I realized that he was not right. Yeah. I just thought he's more interested in my fame and in being yeah. famous than he is. the fact that People Magazine is contacting him. Than yeah. he is in being a good doctor to me. And so I looked at him and I realized, oh my God, I'm in terrible trouble. Then suddenly all the nurses and all the order, everybody came running out because it was such a scene. And I said, I need you to explain to me what exploratory surgery is. And he said, and I need you to lay down and do what I'm telling you to do. Whoa. And I said, I'm not going to do this until you tell me what it is. And he said, I don't have to tell you anything. This has already been handled. Oh my gosh, you're a doctor who's going to operate on you? Yeah. And oh my goodness. I didn't know what to do. Mm. And I looked at him and the facts and I said, you're fired. And he said, you can't do that. And the, the head nurse, God, she said, I, I think she did, sir. I think she did. And he told the orderly, take her back to her room. And he said, you are not allowed to do that. And she said, sir, she's cognizant. She's speaking fluidly. She knows what she's talking about. She's going back to her room, sir, until yeah. we discover. So, we so what she to do. told the. She, it was the nurse who told the orderly to take you back to your room and told the doctor that I had the right to say that he was fired, and wow. I believe she saved my life. Yeah, I do too. Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break. No two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies can't get enough of Texas' world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. 
Macy's Mother's Day gift guide has the perfect gift to make mom feel special. Shop by price, like 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted and for grandma. Get top gifts like Dolce & Gabbana Devotion, Eau de Parfum, Coach Floral Printed Leather Cassie Crossbody Bag, and Le Creuset Shallot Dutch Oven. Shop at Macy's.com slash gift finder. You say on page 21, now I know that we're not far apart. They are not far away. We do not lose their love. And you know this because one night you say, I awoke to my grandmother, Leela, <laughs> standing at the foot of my bed. I know that sounds reasonable, you say, except my grandmother had been dead for 30 years. She said, we don't really know what's wrong with you. We're working on it, but whatever you do, don't move your neck. So this was one of those visitations. Well, by that time, I had been bleeding into my brain for probably a week. And I had been on Dilaudid 24-7. So whatever it was, it also saved my life because my dad had brought me a teddy bear. And so I slid to the side of the bed and I stuffed the teddy bear in behind my neck so that I couldn't move, so that I did what the apparition of my grandmother told me to do. And I believe it saved my life because it was my vertebral artery that was ruptured here in the back of my neck. And by the time I actually did get the surgery that I needed, my artery was just hanging by a very fine thread. And I was so close to death when they finally did decide that they would grant me a second operation and found it and saved my life after a very long surgery of implanting coils in the back of my neck where the artery used to be. So when did you have the, the near-death experience where you encountered When I first the, got to the hospital. That was in the emergency room, right? Yeah. Right, when I finally first got to the, the first hospital. Tell us what that was like. Well... This is super soul, so we, we, we can hear it. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, I... I finally got to the hospital about three days into the bleed, I think. I was unconscious when they did the first CAT scan. And when I woke up, the doctor's talking to me. Yes. And he was kind. Yeah. He was so kind. And then I, I was gone, and I felt this kind of, it was like this whoosh kind of experience. And I was going like sort of up, and the light was very bright, and I was traveling really fast. And I saw people, not only that I had lost, but that I had been very, very, very close to at the end of their lives. And it was like they were kind of looking at me this way, like kind of looking at me like, we're here and we love you. And But they were sort of looking down like, they were waiting for me. And mm-hmm. I had just such incredible sense of well-being, yeah. joyful, happy, good. And then just when I was really getting into the good feeling, I had this feeling on my chest like I'd been kicked by a mule. And it was like, whoa. And suddenly I was awake. And I just, 
looked around and the doctor, there was another person in the room and the doctor was like, don't anybody touch her, don't touch her, don't touch her. And then he said that there was a transfer ambulance coming to take me to this neurological hospital with a special neurological intensive care ward. You write in The Beauty of Living Twice, now we see where that title comes from for real. You write that you made a decision in the emergency room or a choice to live. Explain what that was like and how you were able to choose to live. Well, you know, this happened to me right after 9-11. It was like 9-21. So when I came to in the second hospital, I was in a circular ward. It's just a ring around a nurse's station and all their just drapes sectioning us off. So you're very close to the other patients. And the guy straight across from me um, died in front of me. Mm. So watching this man die and his machines turning off and then them taking him away and then taking the machines away and then his bedding. I mean, it, it's very, very, very real. Like you realize it's a choice and your bed is on a scale and they discuss how much body mass you're losing. And you recognize like this is up to you. Yeah. And I don't remember the number, but you'd lost a lot. I mean, you just did, you were just withering away. I lost 18% of my body mass. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, you also say death is so near and it's not a scary thing. It's very near and safe. How, I think, particularly for people who watch this program and understand that there is a life beyond our physical being, that that is somehow comforting to believe but how do you know it, that death is safe? Well, a lot of things have happened to me in my life. I've been an HIV AIDS worker for 27 years. So I've spent a lot of time with people in intensive care who are dying with HIV AIDS. And some of them are infants and toddlers and little children. And some of them are the parents, the mothers, who will die before their children. And there have been times when I've had, and numerous times, when I've had to stand with the parents who are losing their infants and toddlers and explain to them that they have two days, three days, five days. So I've been through this process, which is so intimate, mm -hmm. and so intimate with death. I imagine nothing is more intimate. You know, you described in the book the love that you felt when you had that experience. Was it like a force or a knowing? A lot of people prayed for me. And a lot of people that I wouldn't have expected. You know, you don't expect a lot of like letters from Hollywood lawyers that they took time out of their day to pray for you. No, no you don't. Right? Restaurant staff prayed for me on their breaks. People that you would think, oh, really? You know, wow, oh, wow. I felt that. I literally mm. was so blown open by what was happening to me that I was without reserve or guard or shield. 
Mm -hmm. I felt that coming to me. I felt that coming at me. You write, I found a love that was so much more, a real love, a true love. No, I didn't get the fairy tale. No. I got real life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You also get a sense of yourself that's very freeing. And that's also quite intimidating. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. When you know that people will love you and really love you, who might not have ever liked you at all. That's incredibly freeing. Yeah. And even you had that moment where you'd called your mom, your mom fell apart, but yet she and your dad were there the next day. And yeah. she comes to the hospital and she puts her hands on your face. And, and for the first time, you say, you felt loved by her. Yes. It took seven years, you say, seven years to recover from your stroke. But what do you mean when you say you lost your beauty? Do you mean the power of it? My radiance went away. Ah. It isn't so much your beauty as your radiance. Mm. It's a radiance and a magnetism and a... Um, presence. Presence? Yeah, a presence. A vibrancy that comes from, first of all, from health. It comes from health. It and well-being. And well-being and youth. And I think that it comes from confidence, too. And I think that when you're in this kind of business that we're in, they yeah. start telling you that you don't have it anymore, and you start believing it. Oh, yeah. They also tell you that by this age, you won't have it anymore. And yes. By a certain age, yeah, you won't have it anymore. Yes. And what I'm finding now is that I'm gaining, at this age, a different kind of radiance. And that the thing that I thought I lost was something that I don't think I ever really needed to begin with. So I'm wondering, after you are the it woman for the times, after basic instinct, how do you not spend the rest of your life chasing that moment and the aura around that moment in time? Well, for me, you know, that was a character that I played. But in the business, they want you to keep being a thing that worked. Yeah. And yeah. for me, that was a character. And that was a character that, for me, was far afield. But we also decided that if we made my PR personality like me, the girl that sits at home and reads books, that wasn't going to be a very interesting sell. So we chose a kind of PR personality for me that was also yeah. an act. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. 
In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. I think that is what I understood more clearly than I ever have in all the conversations I've had with you in reading um, The Beauty of Living Twice, is that that really was, I always knew that it was a character, but this was a persona that was created. (laughs) And you you know what made that clearer to me than anything? There's a moment in this book at school, you were at recess and here come these girls and you describe the golden light on their hair and they were like the goddesses and they were the it girls and they're coming towards you and you're so delighted that oh my gosh they see me and they're gonna say something to me and oh there they are and and then the girl the it girl comes up and tell that story will you i'm still so struck by that story because yeah. I'm thinking, if that had happened to me, how do you get through the rest of your school year? So explain the story first for everybody. I was this kid that was accelerated kid, so I was younger than everybody else and very, very shy. So I'm on the playground with my one friend and we're with our books on the playground because I'm pretty awkward. And so the important cute girls all start coming over. And I think, and I look at my friend, and I think they're going to, maybe they're going to talk to us, and maybe they're going to like us, and maybe they're going to include us. And I, you know, I'm thinking, oh my God, they're coming over to us, you know? Mm-hmm. They come up, and of course, I'm sort of leaning in like this, it's a big moment, and the girl slapped me across the face. And then she turned to her friends, and they all started laughing. And, and I was so stunned and they didn't want to cry but you know the tears just started to start jumping out like cartoon tears and I went and I sat with my back against the wall I was so freaked out and then the bell rang and I went into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and her handprint was on my face yeah and I couldn't get it off I remember I kept washing my face you say in the book that you kept hearing their laughter all through the day and oh Yeah, that image of you leaning back against the wall, waiting for recess to be over. Okay, so my question about that I just kept staying in the bathroom, waiting for the handprint to go away, you know, because I didn't want other people to see it. It So how does that, how does that not define (laughs) who you are in that world of school and your place in that for years to come? I think I'm still a little like that, you know? I go into events and I see the group of the girls that are all that thing, or I go to a party and I see all the girls that are that thing, and then I go sit with sort of the girls that I think are little girls like me, like the little more shy, the more reserved, the more don't know who to talk to. And I still don't know how to kind of throw in. Like, I don't know quite what I'm supposed to say. Well, this is so interesting because before reading The Beauty of Living Twice, 
I would have thought you would have been that it girl. I know that. That you, yeah. I know that You would that have been the girl us. that all the, the all the girls are, yes. Okay. I know. In The Beauty of Living Twice, you share for the first time the trauma, the violence and abuse you suffered as a child. So what happened to you, Sharon? My grandmother assisted my grandfather. My grandfather was a pedophile, but my grandfather beat my grandmother nearly every day of her life. My mother told me that the last time she saw my grandfather alive, he'd beaten my grandmother so badly that her face was black and blue. She had handprints around her neck and her arms and her legs were black and blue. He died a couple of weeks later and my mother said that she was so glad that he died because she had such a rage that she wanted to kill him. But my grandmother was so beaten down by my grandfather that she not only did not protect us, she stood by as he was abusing me, oh. certainly. And you write that it took you years of therapy and attending 12-step meetings to actually recover from the abuse, and you now identify as an incest survivor. Yes. I went to 12-step incest uh, survivor meetings. That must have been very difficult to navigate while you're still also known as this famous sex symbol. Well, I have to say that those meetings are exceptionally private, and it's run normally by a trained professional. They're a little different than other kind of 12-step meetings. Mm -hmm. And in those meetings were doctors, lawyers, police people, there were a lot wow. of people who took positions of authority, um, I found, and I was really surprised, and it gave me a whole different perspective on how to address and deal with this and to let, release my own shame, because it's not my shame to carry. No, no, no. no. On 104, you say, I have felt rage and indignation, and I have responded with condescension and cruelty, false kindnesses and artificial patience toward my mother. Eventually, I faced myself and stopped my relationship with my mother. It's because you felt that she could have done something or could have done more. I had no idea who my mother was. I had no idea about anything because my grandfather threatened to kill me if I said anything to anyone. And that threat was reinforced and reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. So even though as a kid growing up, I shared a room with my sister, I couldn't tell her. So I had a separate childhood from my sister. I was very separate from everyone because when you're carrying the threat that someone's going to kill you, you don't really share your life with people. So this was so fascinating to me. Basic Instinct made you a, a household name and you played Catherine, of course, the sociopathic killer. And now I know from reading the book that you used the pain of your childhood abuse of course. to play her. Of course. Can you explain more about that? Well, when I read the script, I watched a lot of film on serial killers, talking about their stories, why they did it, why they were glad they were in prison, what they were doing. And I started putting a lot of these things together from, I'm a, I'm a big researcher when I do parts. Yeah. And what I believed about the character 
was that she believed that what she was doing was right and valid and that there was a reason for it, but that she lost all sense of moral certitude, real right and wrong, because it had been taken away from her. That was something that I needed to work out for me so that I could play the part thoroughly. Got it. So I want to set the record straight. Why were you not wearing underwear in the interrogation uh, leg crossing scene? And what happened when you first saw it? I, I love what you shared with us about why you're not wearing underwear. Oh, well, in the sequence, I ha what I wore the day that we were shooting, I had, because the dress was white, I had a white, like, thong underwear on. When we were shooting the scene, we'd shot a couple of takes, and the director said to me, we're seeing it, it's glowing white when you cross your legs. It's hitting the light, it's hitting it too much, and we can see you have underwear. If you take them off, we won't see anything. It'll just be a shadow, but we, won't, we will get that you don't have underwear. I said, okay, I took them off. We did the scene, the movie was done. I wasn't shown the film with just the cast or by myself. I was shown the film with a bunch of Century City attorneys, like a full screening room. Oh yeah, this is just the strangers and the lawyers in the room and you, yeah. Yeah, I was so shocked. <laughs> I went up to the projection booth and slapped the director and went to the car and called my lawyer and oh. said, my God. And he said, don't even worry about it. They're not gonna be able to release it because 25 years ago, that would have been a triple X. Yes. So I was like, okay, cool. So I called the director and I'm like, you can't release it anyway, it's a triple X. So forget it. Yeah. So, oh yes, we will and we'll do whatever we want and you don't have an opinion. And basically the you're a girl, so shut up. So I went home and I thought about it and I thought, I'm gonna have to have a, a fight, and, but I do have the ability to stop it. And I gave it a few days and I remember when I started working on the script and my teacher said, you know, they're gonna cut this scene out of the movie unless every single second of the scene is so specific they can't afford to lose it. So you better be the best you've ever been in this scene. You better nail this scene to the floor. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought I did nail that scene to the floor. They're not gonna to cut the floor. This, they're not gonna cut this scene. So I think what I'll really do is just shoot it right through the heart. And I think I'm gonna take this risk. I think yes. I'm gonna jump off the waterfall. Wow. Well, you yeah. nailed it, nailed it, nailed it to the floor. Did you recognize the trajectory had taken you in a different direction as you're sitting in the premiere? No, no. The lights come up. I think we don't have any idea in the moment of these transitory moments in our life. I don't think we have any idea when fame hits us in the face, what's happening. I don't think we have any idea until years later that these are the moments. And I think even the horrible moments, I don't think we have any idea till years later how funny they are gonna be. Mm. I wish we did. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, for such a time as this, this book is coming out, The Beauty of Living Twice, 
at a time when we all need a second lease on life, an opportunity to begin again, to begin anew, to see ourselves differently. Why for you was this the right time? I think that as we grow older, we have this um, societal pressure where people start to try to tell us that our worth is diminished. And yeah. I think that this is a time in our life when our worth is the most enhanced. I think when we're 40, as women, we get to this incredibly powerful place. And it's the time when I have to say that I believe the white male society starts to tell women, you don't have worth. It's the first time when you're 40, when you're told you become, your worth becomes less. And I believe that's because it's the first time in your life when your worth becomes so much more. Yeah. You become the most powerful you've ever been. Yeah, so there's exactly. this, there's this white male suppression. And so you're told you have no power now. You're not attractive now. You're less now. And so there's this thing that you just get hit with and hit with and hit with that's supposed to silence you. And I think that this is incredibly planned, prepared, and oppressive, specifically so that women don't gain their own power. Ah, uh, you know what it is, Sharon? You know what it is? It's redlining women. That's what it is. I made a painting exactly where I got out of bed in the middle of the night. I had this dream. I got up and painted, and I made this painting called What Makes Women? And I redlined around the word woman because I really felt I was being redlined as a woman. And I started thinking about this so deeply and specifically. What Black Lives Matter has done for me is teach me so much about the, just oppression in general, just oppression of anyone that anyone sees as more powerful than they are. And more powerful in any way, there is this type of redlining that occurs. And it's like, of course people saw black people as more powerful. Of course people saw women in this way as more powerful. Of course people see that person as more powerful, so here's that oppression. And I started thinking about all these different things. And then you get to be 60 and you have that second big understanding of life and that big yeah. understanding of self. And then that big understanding of the world as a whole. This is the second time then that you're really powerful. And no, I'm not going to let my radiance be taken away again. Wow. No, no, not this time. This time I love that. I'm awake to this. I love it. That, that's what the 60s are for. That's what Maya said. Well, in the end you say, this is what I have. I have my house, my story, my truth, which will not be true for everyone who stood next to me, which I have to just say, I think that's such a powerful line because you can have you and Kelly in the same room, sharing the same experience, but not come away with the same truth. So I just love that line. Exactly. That it will not be tr true for everyone who stood next to me. You say, time is changing what is true every day. It is no longer healthy to be unkind. I have learned to forgive the unforgivable 
And my hope is that as I share my journey, you too will learn to do the same. So beautiful that you were offering the beauty of living twice to all of us and we're willing to open up your soul to do that, Sharon Stone. Well, Oprah Winfrey, you did the same thing. And I watched you go through it. And I saw that it was not an easy journey because people want to make women or the men that this has happened to feel like somehow it's their fault or that there's no one to tell or that you will be hurt by telling your true story. And I think what we need to know now is that there are so many other people. My story is not so different than anybody else's story, except in the end, my job has a bigger window. Ah, beautifully spoken. Sharon, let me ask you a couple of super soul questions, okay? So you just answer quickly. During the pandemic, what was your favorite meal and who was at the table? My favorite meal was, I learned to make a French roasted chicken, which I really wanted to learn. And my kids were at the table. Did you feel tested? And what tested you the most? Oh my God, yes, I felt tested. In my worth and value in my business life, I would say, I started being told that I was too old and that I wasn't had value anymore. What did you recognize in yourself or in your life that you needed to change during the pandemic? I realized that I had to stop letting others define my worth. Mm, that's big. Well, if you, if you did that, then that's big, that's big. What did you <laughs> learn you could live without, Sharon? I learned that I could live without codependence. And that is hard. What did you learn you could not live without? I can't live without my children. And I learned that I couldn't live without my mom. And I now have the greatest relationship with my mom and she's at my house. Wow. What happened? I wrote my first full draft of the book and then I read it to her. And then I recorded her talking to me for a couple hours. And then I went back and rewrote the book with her story in it. Wow. And then I knew my mom as an adult woman to an adult woman. And I understood the whole damn thing. And wow. I realized that we were gonna need each other to figure it out and get through it. And we decided that we too were going to break the chain. That is some super soulful healing. You know, I think that is the big mistake that I learned many years watching so many people experience terrible relationships with their parents is you try to meet them where they were and where you were as a child, but it's coming to where you are, woman right to now. woman, woman. Yeah. right now, now. right yes. now. Yes. And you did that. Yes. I said to her, wow. you know, there's no way we can go back. I think we have to sit down like two adults and talk about who we are and what happened, just frankly, really frankly, the whole truth. And I was so devastated to learn her story of a depression era girl with rickets and scurvy and sister who was killed by a drunk driver, knocked right out of her hand and two other sisters that were terribly abused and beaten and 
a mother who walked five miles to the welfare office to come home with 50 cents. I learned a lot, yeah. a lot. And about once my you mom. do that, once you do that, you meet on the ground uh, of women to women, a and woman mother to woman. To mother. And mother to mother. Full circle, full circle. Right? Right. Thank you for that, Sharon. The Beauty of Living Twice is available on March 30th. Everywhere books are sold in the world. And Sharon also reads the audio version uh, that you're going to love that. I mean, just to hear your voice speaking the words that are your truth, it's exquisite. So thank you so much, Sharon, for thank being you, in Oprah. my garden with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.